Listeners, this is David Blakesley, and we are talking on Criterion Reflections, episode 130. This is a podcast going through all the films in the Criterion Collection in chronological order of their original release. And today's selection is Sounder, directed by Martin Ritt. This was a 1972 film. I think it was actually released in August of that year. So I'm actually technically backing up a little bit in my timeline, though previous film I talked about, Zadoichi and Desperation, was released in September. But uh, Sounder was recently included in the Criterion channel, the streaming service offered by the Criterion Collection, added to their lineup as part of their Saturday matinee series, which is where they kind of gravitate towards films of uh, an artistic quality, but uh, suitable family fare, you might say. Uh, sometimes they're outright children's movies that have just kind of an artistic touch to them. Sometimes they are, you know, films that just, you know, have a have a certain merit that uh, make them, you know, good uh, viewing for, you know, the kind of the broader population, including the younger ones. And Sounder is definitely an example of that. It's based on a Newbery Award-winning, uh, basically, youth fiction uh, that was published just a few years before the film came out. It stars Paul Winfield and Cicely Tyson and uh, was nominated for several Academy Awards, including the two actors I just named, and also, very significantly, a Best Picture nomination. So out of all the incredible films released in 1972, Sounder was one of the five selected by the Academy uh, for that distinct honor of even being nominated for Best Overall Picture. Um, Maybe we'll talk a little bit about its reception. In fact, I I plan to, because I think uh, how the film was received then and kind of how it stands up now is a pretty important part of the story of Sounder. Uh, To help me sort out my own thoughts and to kind of give his own reactions, uh, we have another David, David Seeley. David, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Well, thanks for having me, uh, David. It's nice to be back. Absolutely, yeah. It's always great to have you on for just a conversation. And I have to give you some credit here for even uh, making this episode happen. Uh, because this film had just been released uh, or just been added to the Criterion channel, um, you know, it hasn't been on my spreadsheet for very long, and uh, nobody had really t- taken me up on it. And I hadn't really you know, pressed or promoted saying, hey, I need somebody to guess with me for Sounder. So I actually came pretty close to thinking, well, maybe I'll just pass it up. You know, I I, I have done that on a few other titles where they've kind of come and gone and, and uh, just to kind of keep things moving in this very long running season four of the podcast, I thought, well, maybe I don't really have to review this, but I'm really glad that I did. And again, I give you credit because you kind of initiated that saying, you know, something to the effect that if nobody else wants to jump on, I'll talk about it with you. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what led to your interest in, in talking with me about this film? Well, it, it was partly that I noticed you'd kind of skipped over it in the queue uh, <clears throat> and uh, that there wasn't any names attached to it. 
And, and it was just one of those things. It's one of those films that for whatever reason, I've just never had an opportunity to see it or mm -hmm. it's just never kind of come up. Uh, so I thought, well, I haven't seen it before. And if David needs somebody, I'm, you know, I'm here for you, Dave, I've got you back as you know, <laughs> so, well, uh, yeah. you know I was ready to jump in and uh, have a chat and I'm glad I did because uh, I'll, I'll say right up front and yeah. be totally um, uh, honest, but I really, really enjoyed this film. I thought it was really nice, uh, like a nice, like just a really nice, beautiful film. And, so I'm really glad I saw it. Actually. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I had never seen it myself either, even though I've known about both the book and the film for a long time. I mean, even since I was a kid, you know, I was uh, what uh, ten, eleven years old when this film came out, and I remember it being sort of promoted as uh, a movie that would be good to see or kind of, you know, pitched to me as a young person uh, back then. Um, and I had sort of, uh, you know, because Sounder, the, the name of the film is also the name of the family dog that is kind of a, you know, a, a central character, especially in the book. From what I understand, the book is very, very much dog centric. And so, you know, I'd already seen films like at that time of my life, like Old Yeller and Lassie and stuff. And I thought I had not really interested in seeing a kid boy and his dog movie. Um, but and so I kind of had categorized the film as sort of, yeah, just kind of pablum, kind of kind of feel good family stuff. And to a certain extent, you could level that charge. I think that's kind of a cynical take. And again, I'm going to talk about some cynical takes on this film once we get further into it. But uh, I, yeah, I also had never seen it up until it just kind of came up in the queue. And I am also very glad that I did. Uh, for anybody who listens to this podcast kind of in sequence, you know that I've had a little bit of a series of pretty rough, rough films the last few episodes. Uh, I already mentioned Zadoichi and Desperation, which has a very you know strong uh, reputation among even Zadoichi fans as probably one of the bleakest, darkest, most nihilistic entries of this long-running franchise. It's just unremittingly bleak and 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 tragic and sad and then before that was a, a pretty influential horror film the last house on the left which was Wes craven's feature length debut and another um, incredibly sadistic brutal merciless movie that sort of toys with its victims and you know so two really heavy uh kind of dark uh passages that to, to go through just in getting ready for the podcast and really kind of immersing myself in the movies which i try to do when i talk about them here uh so i was definitely ready for a palate cleanser and something to kind of change the tone and i have to say the pendulum swung pretty far to the other side here this is a g-rated film even though there is a little bit of cussing in it and there's a, a particularly intense scene of animal violence that the dog actually gets shot and bloodied up and you see that on screen. So, you know, I, I'm thinking a G-rated movie in our era probably would not have that level of, of animal violence, um, you know, or they'd have to remove it or they'd bump it up to PG or something like that. But uh, the G rating was a different thing back in the early 70s. So, yeah, so you, you had a good experience with it, David. I did indeed. I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think for many years I had a perception of this film as just being one of those kind of Disney-esque mm -hmm. kind of family films and it's called Sounder and it's the name of the dog. So you just assumed that kind of, um, <clears throat> I kind of did, did the same as you. I think for many years I had it lumped in with those kind of kind of feel good 
you know, very basic sort of family films, uh, like mm -hmm. you say, boy and his dog kind of uh, things. So I think that's part of the reason why I never got around to watching it is because I maybe as I got older, I didn't really think that it was going to be something that was going to be uh, particularly appealing. Right. But, um, now, uh, you know, ha having visited it now, I, I can really say that it's it's a very life affirming film. Mm -hmm. It doesn't uh, dwell too much on sentimentality. It it, it kind of earns its emotional punches. I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it gets too sugary and and syrupy and all those sorts of things. It and um, but it's also very positive and and really gives. Uh, despite you know, there's obviously points in the story where there are challenges for the for the family in the film, but but. Uh, it, it's all done in a really positive life affirming way. And really it's about the strength of the family and the community to kind of rise above these challenges and uh, sort of find the best way forward. And I, I think that's what makes it a really nice, uh, really nice film. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into some of the, the details of it because you're, I, you know, I, I pretty much are right on board with everything you say. And, you know, you and I are both fathers. We both have families. Um, you know, your children are younger than mine. Mine are all up in their thirties now and we've kind of grown them up and now I'm getting into grandfatherhood, but I, I definitely appreciate a film where I can, you know, sort of either sit down and watch it with my family and, you know, we all sort of get something positive out of the experience uh, or even just, that caused me to reflect on my own experiences. You know, if I'm just watching it with myself or my wife, uh, while our kids are off doing other things, um, you know, I, I appreciate these films that can kind of get into the dynamics of a family that's overcoming adversity, uh, the strains that come up uh, in even the, the relationship between a husband and wife when uh, economic hardship and, and other types of pressures, uh, kind of get in the way of, of uh, maybe realizing your ambitions or your dreams uh, as a parent. Uh, and of course, there is a cultural context here. This is a film set in the early years of the Great Depression in 1933, Louisiana. There's kind of a title that's right over the opening scenes there to kind of put us in context. And the film revolves around the life of a sharecropping family, um, the Morgans. Uh, Nathan Morgan is the father, and the mother's name is Cicely Tyson. I forget her name as a, as a character. But, uh, you know, they are the parents, and they've got, I think, three children. Um, uh, David Lee is the oldest of the three. He's around 11, 12 years old or so. And, um, and the opening scenes of the film, you know, kind of feature the dog sounder. He's kind of a, a hunting dog and, uh, they're trying to, to catch a raccoon. The father and son are out there with the dog at night and, uh, they're not just out there for sport. They're looking to get some meat for their meal because as sharecroppers, uh, you know, people who work on a, a large plantation and get a share of the crops, they don't even get wages. They just get some of the produce that's grown uh, through their labor and they've got to somehow live off of that. Uh, you know, they don't have a whole lot to spare. Obviously, this is back in the time of, of not only economic depression, but also pretty overt racism where, you know, you're just going to take what we give you and you're going to have to make the best and to get by. And so you sort of established both the family's economic hardship because, you know, they're so desperate. They've got to go hunt raccoons for a little bit of meat that they can kind of get off the thing. Uh, but there's also some moments of just family life. So you get to sort of see the dynamics 
of husband and wife and children. You get to see the dad's, his character. He's a little bit more of a boisterous, you know, uh, you know, he's a leader. He's, he's the guy and, and, uh, and he's a personality. Uh, he's, he's also a pretty good baseball player. There's a nice little scene of, uh, kind of families coming together for a little pickup baseball game. And so you, you really get a sense of who these people are, um, dealt a pretty difficult hand in life all in all, but making the best of it as they can. Uh, however, the father makes a, a kind of a poorly thought through decision, decides he's going to, uh, and he's uh, born out of a bit of frustration, I guess, because he recognizes how the chips are stacked against him. And he uh, kind of gives in to maybe a little bit of his uh, kind of impulsive thinking that he's going to break into a smokehouse and steal some meat so that he can finally feed his family, you know, three growing boys. Uh, they've got appetites and he wants them to be strong. And so he steals some meat, brings it home in the middle of the night. One night, the kids wake up to the smell of ham and bacon frying in the pan and they can hardly believe it. And nor, nor can the wife, you know, she kind of wonders where this all came from. And he just says, I did what I had to do. And, uh, you know, so th that's where they go to the baseball game. And on their way back, they see that there's a sheriff and another guy, a couple of men uh, standing in front of their house. And uh, the father's been busted for theft. And, uh, you know, it's not going to go well for him from there, just based on how the justice system plays itself out in that particular time and era. Uh, yes, he is sentenced to a year of, of hard labor at a prison camp, uh, an unnamed prison camp, so they don't even know where he's going. Uh, but it's basically, you know, sort of one form of slavery, sharecropping to another, a forced labor camp where they are doing public works projects, uh, benefiting the state, but, uh, you know, basically doing so from pretty humiliating conditions. So that's the basic setup. Uh, dealt with this pretty significant crisis. How is the family going to get through this? And as we focus more and more on the character and the, uh, the development of this young boy, David Lee, how is he going to respond to the adversity? Because this is kind of ultimately a coming of age story. It only takes place over the course of maybe a year or so. Uh, but in the meantime, David Lee goes through some experiences that kind of chart the course of his future life. Uh, so, David, tell me just a little bit about your response to the the, the dramatic setup and just kind of how that story you know, connected with you. Well, I really like the way the film <clears throat> sort of leads you uh, down into the path of of the the overall circumstances of the character because the film opens up as you say quite rightly with a really a lovely kind of father and son moment they're out at night uh, hunting possums they've got the old family dog who's maybe not quite up up to it anymore he's getting a little bit long in the tooth but he's you know he's quite dutifully out there trying to hunt down those critters for them and that's great and then we have a nice sort of uh, section of the of the home life but then what happens is uh, David Lee goes to school the next day and it, it transpires he has to run uh, about six miles, they say, to get to school. And when he gets there, he's a little bit late. And I loved this, uh, this moment because it, it was quite uh, subtly handled in that David is very, he's late for school and he's running towards the school and he enters into the school grounds. But rather than just running into the front of the school like you would expect him to, he runs around the back. And he goes into the back and then has to do a circuit all the way through the school back to the front of the building to go into his class. 
And that's where you immediately kind of go, well, wait a minute, why didn't he just go in the front door? Because he was mm. late. Uh, and then he enters this classroom and then you realize, because you see he, he, uh, there's a sea of white students and he has to go to the back of the class to sit at the back. And uh, that kind of sets up right there that that whole sort of dynamic about the kind of the community that they're living in and the circumstances that they're living in. Uh, and then we uh, we really get to understand the, the father uh, through his, like you say, his frustrations and his things like he, he knows he's in a situation where he's not really uh, being treated fairly. And it's that just that with the, the, that moment that he snaps. And I think it's handled very well because um, uh, he knows he's not doing the right thing. But I think he just kind of feels in a way, like you say, he's kind of getting back a little bit at, at, at his circumstances, kind of he's lashing out in just that kind of weak moment. And I think um, uh, that that's quite a powerful thing as well. And um, th then we get introduced to the kind of the, the sort of casual cruelty of the of the the towns the, that he lives in and the, and the kind of the white community there, who all act very much like, uh, even though they they contribute to the community and they're part of the the economics of the community and things everybody acts like they're doing them a favor really don't they and uh, uh put constantly putting them in in these situations and i think the the the, the sheriff in particular I, I mean i think it's quite interesting the chap who plays the sheriff uh, incidentally is, is that uh, chap who sorry i'm trying to remember his name but he he's quite a familiar face i think to tv fans because he went on to star in the dukes of hazards didn't he Dukes of Hazard. I, I, you know, I, I don't have that reference right there, but I mean, he looks familiar for sure. But I, I don't yeah, know. yeah. Well, well, yeah. I think he's made a career of sort of paying the, the sort of bumbling sort of southern sheriffs and things like that. <laughs> okay, sure. But uh, he's quite an interesting character in this because uh, he makes a lot of decisions uh, that that are very harsh and very very kind of casually cruel towards mm -hmm. the mother uh, once he's he's dealing with this. Um, uh, this crime that the husband has committed, but you almost get a sense uh, from him and some of the other towns people as well, that almost he's kind of conflicted about the situation as well Is that on a certain level, he kind of feels like he, he knows he, what he's doing isn't quite right mm -hmm. and just yet. He kind of feels compelled to do it anyway, because that's just the way things are. And he's concerned about how the community is going to respond if if he doesn't do things differently, yeah, so that's I, absolutely the the consequence of kind of a a, a racist uh, you know system is that yeah. anybody who gets out of line will suffer the consequences. So it's it's kind of reinforced and and to a certain extent, you know, everyone who's caught up in it is victimized. I don't certainly don't want to make a, a false equivalency and say, well, the whites had it just as bad as the blacks. But, but you know, there is definitely this burden of expectation that I've got to, you know, take this man away from his family. I've got to put their livelihood at serious risk, you know. Uh, I mean, this is a time when people were starving, when people, you know, were truly desperate. And uh, yet you're going to take... Uh, a man who's, you know, under pretty desperate circumstances, took a little bit of food, food's replaceable. It, does the punishment really fit the crime? And yet that was the code. That was the ethos of the times. 
Yeah, and I think that's what I really like uh, about this film is because sometimes when you see films that deal with these kind of issues, be it racism or or any kind of uh, uh, social sort of uh, problem like this, is that you that sometimes they can be quite heavy-handed, and there's yeah. real sort of um, if you'll forgive me using the term of black and white, good and evil. There's sort mm -hmm. of the, the people who who uh, commit these terrible atrocities and these terrible sort of um, things, the, the way that, that they treat other people with this great inhumanity. But in this film, I think it's, it deals with it very subtly. And like you say, it, it really demonstrates well about how these things become institutionalized. Yeah. And, and, I, and you can see the conflict even in the townspeople uh, that they on some level know well this isn't right this isn't just but this is what's expected and and how that those kind of things just perpetuate themselves and go in that snowball uh, mm -hmm. effect of of kind of uh, causing people to to make these you know really uncomfortable decisions so and you're right it's not to excuse the the you know or to somehow justify the the behaviors but it's just to to, to show that it, it becomes almost an expectation that people do it almost in reflex mm -hmm. and uh and when it when um and also just how, how people uh, tend to have that attitude there, there's a great scene where where the mother goes to the shop after the husband's in jail and she just needs to pick up some supplies and 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 just the sheer sort of um patronizing attitude of the shopkeeper and how oh he yeah right. says you know oh i you know i did you a favor i got got your kids into the school and i you know we've gone out of our way to sort of be nice to you but but you're of course sitting there going well why shouldn't they expect their kids to go to school and why shouldn't they expect all the same things that everybody else has but it's it's amazing how that attitude would would develop in someone that he somehow thinks that they that giving those people the the things that they should expect just like anyone else is somehow doing them a favor and that you can see right. that that kind of uh, that attitude is quite extraordinary well there's a there's an assumption that they sort of belong at this lower strata of society and yet despite mm. that i'm going to do you this kind of deed but now your your husband's actions look bad on me. And yeah. so I'm going to, you know, take out my scorn and contempt on you. You know, mm. it's, it's very, very twisted around, but you're right. It, it's all, there is a subtlety to it. I mean, and again, not every, not every reviewer, especially back in the day, um, saw it that way. I, mm. I want to hold off on that at level of discourse and analysis yet yeah but, um, well, i think you sent me some links yeah, and we, yeah, we can visit yeah. that in a bit but like definitely yeah so the the reviews but specifically that you that you shared with me is just quite extraordinary actually yeah yeah but <laughs> I, I do want to say that because i want to stay in the film here because sure. I, I do believe that there's a lot of you know demonstration of just the kind of pervasiveness of discrimination and condescension and exploitation that was just sort of an everyday thing. It was just the water that everybody swam in, but there really was kind of a caste system. There was a hierarchy of, of uh, you know, who, who were the, you know, the good blacks and the not so good, who were the good whites and the not so good, who had the power and, and how was that exercise and who benefited from, you know, the, you know, 
the decisions that were made. So here's this family again, um, and, and David Lee kind of coming up of age and recognizing these things that his dad's really, you know, he, he admires his dad. He looks up to him and as he should, but when he sort of recognizes how his father is seen by the, the powers that be, it's, it's humbling, it's deflating. And he finds himself, you know, just having to make some really difficult choices himself on, on what's he going to do. Uh, one of the kind of central sort of themes of the film is, is or, or passages of the film is when David Lee, uh, sort of during a lull time in, in, the, in the sharecropping life, decides that he wants to find his dad's camp. And the way that that happens is that uh, one of the noble-hearted uh, white women in the town takes advantage of her position to, you know, kind of get access to some files in the sheriff's office that, you know, she could detect where, uh, you know, the, the father had been sent. And yet when she's caught snooping around, she has a lot of that pressure thrown on her. And she decides that she's going to have to sit on that information for a time because if she disclosed it, that would just, you know, jeopardize her own position. But she has this moral quandary. Uh, David Lee is finally, you know, given the information that he needs. And he goes out on this long journey, you know, many miles from home, uh, walking through the the kind of the open countryside to, to find his father. And even though he never does actually get to encounter him uh, through a chain of circumstances, he gets injured by a, a guard who doesn't like this kid you know, kind of poking around and, and looking through the, the, the fence that, that keeps the inmates, you know, penned in. And with his injury, he runs and comes across another classroom. This is a school for black students. You know, in, the, in the first school that we see, he's, he's one of just a very few, you know, privileged uh, black children who are allowed to sit in the back row of the class. Uh, here, he's in a room full of black children with a black school teacher, um, much more uh, rustic circumstances, the building, you know, the texts, all of that, um, not nearly well provided for as, as the white children are in their school. Uh, but he is kind of taught, you know, taken under the wing by this black school teacher who introduces him to black-centered literature, the works of W.E.B. Du Bois, and others, and kind of starts to give this young boy a sense of black consciousness, I guess, to use some of the vernacular of the times where, you know, there's, there's a dignity and there's a, there's a, a an introspection and there's a, a, there's a perspective that this, this boy now can sort of identify and grow into. And that's kind of, you know, the trajectory that we, we sense him on as the movie kind of goes through its various passages and, and draws to its conclusion. You know, ultimately the father is reunited. Uh, Sounder, the dog who had been shot when his father was arrested, and that animal violence scene I mentioned earlier, uh, he goes into sort of a hiding for a period. And so like the father who's gone away, Sounder has gone away, there are some happy reunions. And that that gives the film that sort of sense of uplift and relief and, and hope that I think makes it a very, you know, affirming and positive family viewing experience. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you have to have those types of arcs within a movie of this sort, uh, rather than maybe a, a bleaker or more pessimistic, um, portrayal of the effects of, of racism and economic exploitation and poverty and all of that, that, you know, might 
seem in some circles at least more realistic or more grounded or or less gauzy or sentimental um you don't really have to you know uh immerse your children uh or even yourselves in these kind of you know hopeless or 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 soul crushing messages to get your point across um the fact that this does end on you know a, a tone of uplift and and looking forward to what the future holds I think that's a perfectly acceptable uh, trajectory and takeaway for a film of this sort. I mean, I, I really liked uh, the the element of because uh, Ke Kevin Hook's character, the boy, mm -hmm. is very much uh, uh, in that transitional period in his life where yeah. he very much looks up to his dad, admires him, wants to spend time to, with him, wants to learn from him, but he also, uh, through the course of these events, gets a taste of what else uh, life has to offer and the sort of the, the wider planes that he can go and follow through uh, with education and, and learning and uh, meeting new people and being part of a wider community. And I think that's very important because in a, in a sense, a film is about uh, that transition and that sort of let you know, very gradually having to let go of the apron uh, strings, as it were, to sort of realize that, you know, you, you can hold on to that childhood and that, that safety of being around your, your parents and, and your family. And at a certain stage, you have to let those things go in order to be able to break out on your own and become your own person. Mm -hmm. and I think that's really at the crux of it is what the film is, is, is really all about is about that that kind of letting go uh, because the father and the mother and everyone have have to do that as well don't they through yeah. the course of the film yeah yeah so, yeah david lee you know when his father comes back from his year and of hard labor you know he's he's somewhat disabled his leg has been injured somehow he's just not as as strong or as as productive uh, in the field as he had been and and so David Lee is like, well, I guess I got to be the man of the family now, or at least one more, you know, strong body uh, around the farm, uh, around the plantation. And the father himself is like, nope, you, we have a different idea. You you are my son, and I'm going to direct you to get your schooling, get your education. Uh, I'll be okay. Give me time. I'll get it back. Uh, your destiny is not to be a farmhand. You're not, you're not just going to be a sharecropper. We're going to point you in a direction that goes above and beyond that even though the boy out of loyalty to his father wants to be around to help because that's what he knows he knows that this is how you know we can sustain ourselves this is how we can make our money uh, as little and as humble as it is uh, he wants to do the right thing but uh, he needs that sort of parental endorsement to get out there and get an education and make something of yourself. And so that is, again, is another sort of affirming message for the young people that might be watching it, who might uh, be looking to, you know, get a note of encouragement to, to think beyond, you know, your present circumstances into what might be. So again, another, another pretty positive takeaway. Um, and, and for the parents to, to not be a force that holds their children back if they're capable of achieving bigger and better things because not every parent responds favorably to that you know and uh, sometimes there are you know parents who view their children with suspicion if they're too much into education or ideas or or just some other um, you know some other pursuit that doesn't maybe follow in the lines of what's traditionally expected of them 
And I, I think too, one, one thing in, in a weird sort of way, this film reminds me a bit of a, another film that I uh, quite like a lot. It's one of my favorites called the, the flowers of St. Francis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Know, on right. the surface seem like a, a similar film, but I think it is because the, um, uh, the Rosalini film very much deals with people who uh, maintain their, their uh, dignity and their sense of purpose and their their faith and their their uh, um, their community despite the sort of the indifference and the casual sort of cruelties and injustices and humiliations of the world around them they they maintain that dignity and that sense of purpose and their their belief in themselves and the people uh, you know their their friends or their family uh, so in a in a weird sort of way, when I was watching this film, it kind of reminded me a bit of the Flowers of St. Francis as mm. well, because I, I felt thematically there was that that sort of core that ran through it, because we talked about this being a positive film, and I think it is, because even in the face of, of um, some real, as we talked about, casual cruelty and, and um, d- um, disrespect and and sort of very sort of uh, tough times that this family always uh, does that, especially the mother, like Cicely Tyson, she's Mm -hmm. brilliant in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a a really great performance of someone who you you can see sometimes in her eyes, the contempt and the the anger that you can see in her face. But at the same time, she always uh, treats uh, uh, even people who are being quite horrible to her with uh with respect and she keeps her chin up and she says well i'm just gonna do what i have to do to to um you know i'm just gonna do what i have to do mm-hmm. and and uh there there's a real sort of power in that and uh you know you can only admire her in, oh, in yeah. these circumstances about how you know it's just getting up and saying i'm just gonna keep going i'm not gonna let these things stop me from from doing what I need to do to make sure my family is safe and we 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 we're going to be okay, and I yeah. think that that's a really powerful kind of message to to you know a good a good message for a family film I think to to have. Well, it's an incredibly nuanced and, as you said, powerful performance from Cicely Tyson. She doesn't have a lot of dialogue. I mean, there's a few scenes where she says you know some things, but. So much of what she's communicating is emotions and words, thoughts that have to be repressed because if she just spoke the plain truth of it, it would get her in even more trouble and adversity than she's already in. And, you know, it just, it to me feels like she is a representative of black women who have had to put up with so much uh, just contempt and casual dismissal uh, in the face of society. Uh, she, she's got wisdom, she's got strength, pride, poise, dignity, all of that. And yet, you know, she's marginalized and, and even, even her disappointment in her husband, you know, she loves him and, you know, she bakes him that cake while he's still in the, you know, in the County jail as a, as almost as a, uh, an, a recommitment, an affirmation that she's not going to abandon him. She still believes in him. Maybe she's got some anger at, at, at the foolish choice that he's made and the, you know, the consequences that have affected the whole family now, but she's not going to step out and just leave him behind. 
still uh, the fact that she just has to put up with so much um, and and be resilient in the face of it all. I, I mean, I feel that you know her 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 ability to capture that must be based on some real life experience. You know, there there's an authenticity and a genuineness that just comes through, and and how she is you know, enduring in the face of so much adversity and resistance and keeping her family together. You know, there's a scene where, you know, after her husband's been taken away, the sharecropper is like, how are you all going to do this? How how are you going to be able to do your share of the work uh, when your husband's away and your kids are so young, so small? She says, well, we'll do it because we have to. I mean, there's just no other choice about it. I just really, you know, it's a very simple line of dialogue, but it, it packs a lot of punch. And oh you know, yeah, so this was uh, both her and Paul Winfield nominated for best uh, you know, actors in their respective male-female roles. Uh, this is the only nominations that she ever got, but, uh, you know, she really had a fantastic career. I, he, he did as well. Um, mm. The Academy was ready to bestow that recognition on them, probably because of the nobility, perhaps even a little bit of tokenism in somewhat in, in some ways. But uh, again, I don't want to get into the, the post uh, analysis quite yet. Uh, I also want to talk just a little bit about the, the you know, the, the filmmaking. I, I really enjoyed the tranquility of those bucolic scenes of, of the, uh, you know, when David Lee's kind of running through the countryside, um, the the reunions that take place are very interesting. When he's looking for Sounder, and when Sounder, and also when the father f- show up, they're really long shots. Now, if you were to see this on a large screen in the theater, perhaps you know you, you could even appreciate the panorama a little bit more. Even watching on a pretty good size screen here at home. I was struck by how much he just sort of the Martin Ritt the, and also his cinematographer sort of let the natural environment sort of swallow up these characters from such a distance. So did that make any kind of impression on you, David? Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful film. Um, um, and and that, that goes into a bit, the, some of those shots you described go into a bit of what I was talking about, about the this film doesn't go in for a lot of cheap sentimentality and things like right. that. Like a, in another film, when the, when the dog shows up after having been gone for so long and you don't know if it's alive or dead, some filmmakers might have handled that with a big close-up with a big sloppy hugs and licks on the face yeah. and oh yeah, yeah the music swelling up in the background and the, you know sort of telling you how to feel about this great moment uh but if the, but this film doesn't do that it, it has these very beautiful long shots uh you're not always even 100 percent sure um what's happening at first it, it really uses the landscape well to create that kind of that distance and that that slight, slight feeling of kind of alienation there's some beautiful moments where the um, where the boy uh, is kind of it's almost like a dream sequence, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. he's kind of imagining that his father and the dog come home, and that's told in in that more sort of traditional kind of uh, way uh, that you would expect fr- from a scene like that. But it turns out to be like sort of a him just kind of having a moment of just sort of um, pining and, and wishing mm-hmm. for for the life that he had at one point yeah. that that youth and that when is in his time with his father and his dog uh and uh the, the, those are some beautiful moments and the, the cinematography is beautiful in this film um uh, and also it, it should be stressed about the dog because the film is called sounder 
and uh, that's the dog in the film. And like we talked about, we had a, perhaps a, a misconception of what this film was about based on that. But actually, the dog doesn't play a huge role mm -hmm. in the film, does he? He's he's kind of a he almost just kind of represents the 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 kind of life that that the boy is leaving behind in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Dog, he's a bit he's a, he's a bit long of the tooth, as I said. He's maybe not quite uh, going to be around for much longer anyway. And then in that moment uh, where the where the sheriff or one of the sheriff's men tries to kill him, um, you know, that's a quite an intense moment. And the dog runs off and sort of disappears for a very large portion of the film. Mm -hmm. So the film is not about the dog per se, but I think the dog kind of represents a certain aspect of the boy's life that he uh, eventually has to let go. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, uh, that that makes it a, a much stronger film as well. Yeah, it, yeah. The dog is kind of a representation of you know, perseverance and overcoming adversity. He he takes mm -hmm. his wounds, he runs off, hides, recovers, and then he's he's back. You know, so again, you know, you 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 don't really want to see the dog just you know shrivel up and die. That would be pretty <laughs> traumatic for a, a kids oriented film. And I you know they had to they had to name the the movie sounder because of the book tie-in because that book had been very popular and and widely prescribed reading for young people at that time so you know if you're going to capitalize on that you're going to name the film sounder even if you've changed the uh, emphasis from what i think the book is a very dog-centered story uh you sort of got to maintain some continuity so you know let's let's just talk about a, a one a couple more elements here I, I i did enjoy the music uh, taj mahal is kind of a mm -hmm. noted black folk blues singer he plays a he's a bit of a comic relief character he kind of pops up from time to time he's one of the baseball players and he's just kind of a friend of the family who throws a little bit of you know kind of you know, humor and and uh you know kind of that down south a uh, bluesy feel and uh you know he he also composed a lot of the soundtrack music of the film lightning hopkins also appears on the soundtrack so uh, i just the the sonics uh, of, of the film just kind of rounded out that whole period atmosphere and I, I appreciate that quite a bit yeah definitely taj mahal i think it is music is quite uh, central to creating that atmosphere in the mm -hmm. film and i think his character as well Although he's, he's he's just sort of a more minor supporting character, but he does again represent that community within the the, the this town, and that, that the fact that they come to support each other when when times are are, are, are tough for somebody, there is that real uh, sense of of all the people from the church community and things that come around, and they're there to support each other and help each other. So they're so the family aren't alone. And again, I think that's something that the film kind of stresses about both the, both the negative and the positive aspects of of us of a community like this. There's that support uh, mechanism that's there for people, but also then there's also the, the the politics and the 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 sort of institutionalized issues that you get when you have these small communities as well. So they're both sort of represented. Mm -hmm. um, uh, can we also talk a little bit about Kevin Hooks because I think yeah. he's definitely worth uh, mentioning the the young uh, he plays the boy in the film David yeah. Lee um, perhaps not necessarily like a like a really great great acting performance although he definitely you know does, does is good in the film and uh, but 
he's someone who who's had quite a, an interesting career i think subsequent to sounder he uh, he went on i'm sure a lot of people from uh, my age will will remember the tv show white shadow i don't know if you remember mm-hmm. it david but um, not particularly no oh well this is the thing with ken howard where he played the basketball coach do you remember and okay. there was a, the, the team um uh, the basketball team in this inner city school uh but kevin hooks was one of the stars of 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 that show wasn't he, he went on to be in that but what what's interesting about that is not so much the tv program although i think it was probably a fairly well-regarded show at its time but uh, a lot of the um, members of the cast of that show uh, have, have subsequently gone on to have quite active uh, careers as directors and Kevin Hook was was one of them that he sort of used the White Shadow as a as a springboard to become a director, both in television and in film. And oddly enough, he directed a remake of Sounder for Disney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just what? Well, I say it was a few years ago, but I, I think it was two thousand three. I think is what I read. Okay, so yeah, well, yeah. As you get older, these time spans uh, <laughs> seem shorter, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, but uh, I mean, I don't know what on earth would have possessed anyone to think that they needed to make a remake of Sounder because the, the film we're talking about is, uh, is, is pretty darn good, really. So I think um, they could have just, um, you know, um, re-released that or something instead. Uh, but he did go on to direct a remake, and actually uh, Paul Winfield stars in that film again, mm-hmm. apparently. I've not seen it, so I can't really Me either, it. and I do wonder if maybe they made it more of a Disney dog movie <laughs> or something like that. I, somehow, I suspect, I mean, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, right, but I suspect right. you're probably absolutely right that it's probably a little bit more, it's got a little bit more syrup on it. <laughs> <laughs> and but, perhaps uh, maybe more faithful to the book for all of that, so yeah. Quite possibly, yeah, I haven't read the book either, and I I don't suspect I ever will, but you never know. Um, uh, but Paul Winfield apparently is in that as well, and it's one of his last films uh, before he mm-hmm. passed away. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just worth noting because I think um, Kevin Hooks is, is quite uh, someone who who's had a quite an interesting career after this. So to yeah. see him. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm looking at his IMDb page. He's got like 93 director credits, and a lot yeah. of that's in TV, but a lot of really prominent series. I mean, the X Files, yeah. Agents of Shield. Uh, yeah, just yeah, this is us. So it seems like yeah, he's definitely parlayed his very uh, you know young introduction to show business into a pretty you know, pretty well, uh, respectable career. So yeah, I'm definitely very impressed. I mean, honestly, he's not a name that had struck a lot of chords of memory with me, but as I go down, you know, a, a fair amount of acting, but he's definitely at this point will be remembered as a director more than a, as a screen performer. Yeah. I think part of that is I'm not sure he's done a lot of sort of feature films like theatrical right. films. I mm-hmm. think he is, his career has been predominantly in television. I sure. could be wrong on that without sort of going over his, full list of credits but i think he has done a couple films and mm-hmm. and i think he's quite a, a prominent and respected uh, person in the in the sort of television industry so i just thought it was worth noting that 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 he's had quite a you know because a lot of films you see these child actors and they you know usually sort of do a couple of films or one or two films and then they they sort of kind of um don't uh, end up pursuing a career in show business but he's had quite a quite a long and, and uh, productive career in, in, in there. So um, I think he was just worth uh, noting that, I suppose. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, other behind-the-scenes characters who put this film together. We've already mentioned Martin Ritt. He does mm-hmm. have a film in the Criterion Collection, uh, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, which yes. I think is one of 65, 66, starring Richard Burton. Great uh, adaptation of Jean Le Carré's spy thriller there, kind of a Cold War movie classic and uh martin ritt you know i did a little bit of reading up on him yeah he he had a pretty solid career as well uh he is a jewish white man who made movies that i would say are on that kind of um progressive uh, spectrum as far as socially conscious kind of speaking to the audiences of his time with a message about uh, you know maybe questioning some of the uh the social status quo, as we've talked about with this film, in, in particular, talking about racism and and uh, economic exploitation of the poor, uh, and, you know, that's you know, there's a message here that is, you know, this is a a film mostly comprised and focused on black characters. We've already mentioned some of the white characters, including some of the the noble uh, white characters. And and there's that whole idea of a white savior who kind of comes in to save the day from these poor, hard-pressed black people. And so that's, that kind of opens up some of the, you know, some of the little critical backlash that maybe we'll get to in a moment. But the uh, producer, Robert Radnitz, um, if you notice, uh, it's a Mattel production. Uh, Robert Radnitz made a lot of children's movies. And the Mattel Corporation, which is a pretty prominent producer of toys, apparently got some of their corporate proceeds and started getting into the movie business. I think this is the first of relatively few uh, productions by the Mattel Corporation, but this is one of them. Again, a very popular uh, novel uh, marketed to children. Uh, a lot of kids were, were told to read this in their, you know, fourth grade <laughs> English classes or whatever. So just an interesting kind of coming together of different creative forces. Uh, and then it's based on a story written by William H. Armstrong, who himself was a black man uh, who grew up in the South. Um, and uh, this film is set around the time when Martin Ritt, the director, would have been around 20 years old. He was born in Brooklyn, I believe, like I said, to a Jewish family, went down south to, I think, North Carolina on a scholarship, uh, athletic scholarship, and uh, I think had a pretty significant sort of uh, culture shock, a transition from his uh, you know, very urban setting to going down, down south and kind of getting a different sense of what life was like down there. And like I say, he developed kind of a political consciousness, and as he got into filmmaking, decided that, that was kind of the direction that his films were going to go. Um, was so, he yeah. not an actor first, if I remember correctly? I mean, he he, he, he was an actor as, an as actor. well, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and yeah. he ended up getting blacklisted, didn't he? Because right. He, right. he had some... Uh, some um, um, he got involved in some theater groups and things that I guess yeah. had uh, ties with com- Communist Party or Russia and things. So at some point that came back to haunt him mm-hmm. in later life in the 50s during the McCarthy sort right. of uh, communist witch hunts. He he ended up being blacklisted because of some of these previous associations. Yep. And that's yep. one of the things that led to him becoming a film director because that was how he could get some work, I guess. 
Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, but he he made movies with a bit of a message, and I think that's that's kind of where I want to kind of take the conversation now. Is that uh, like I say, this film was was commercially successful overall, very well received, and yet there was this kind of blowback, this kind of uh, sneering that that took place in some circles because. You know, as we've already talked about on, on this season of the podcast, this is also a time when black exploitation was becoming a thing. Shaft and the Melvin Van Peebles film, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and on other films of that sort, Superfly came out the same year, which I don't think mm-hmm. has any Criterion collection connection. But um, you know, these are in the backdrop too of things like the Black Panthers and the sort of the more right, sort of right. you know kind of militant side of 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 um, in the black community, sort of mm-hmm. saying it's time for us to stand up and uh, you know take a stand. Yeah, so you're, you're right. So, so yeah, well, well, no, that's fine. The, 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 so this this was kind of the the context in which this film was released. So again, it's it's orienting itself to a different audience than black exploitation, which obviously involved themes of violence, sex, you know, sexuality, uh, drug usage, and and glamorizing this kind of criminal way of life in many cases, or at least perhaps. Um, minimizing the negative consequences associated with that you know dying young facing imprisonment uh there was there was a kind of a defiance there uh, of the limitations and the stereotypes that have been imposed on on black people in particular black men uh and so you sort of see black exploitation as a pushback against all that i'm going to be who i'm going to be i'm not going to be some kiss up of uncle tom you know sell out uh you know compromiser there and you know, so it's interesting to me, as as uh, we've already kind of mentioned some of these reviews that um, really kind of took a kind of a, a dismissing tone towards the movie. Um, and so, in the show notes, I, I do have several links there. Uh, in fact, I might want to read one of them at, at some length. The one written by Andrew Saras, of all people, from the Village Voice, one of the great uh, movie critics and founders of the auteur theory. Uh, he had some really incredibly critical things to say about this movie. But, uh, David, let me just kind of ask for some of your thoughts about that whole theme. Like, uh, you know, a, a story written by a white man, directed by a white man, produced by a white man. Now, they did bring a guy named Lonnie Elder in, who was a black writer, to do the screenplay. And he's the one who maybe gets the most credit for shifting the story to being more family focused rather than a story about the boy and his dog. But, you know, you've read some of those reviews and you've seen some of the kind of, you know, the, the discourse that was surrounding the film from the critical establishment at that time. What are, what are some of your thoughts about that before I go off on my own tangent here? (laughs) Well, I I guess I was a bit surprised by that because I think obviously when you're talking about the difference between shaft or sweet, sweet, Bad, badass song. Sorry, I'm always afraid I'm going to miss out a badass in there <laughs> when I say the title. But uh, you know, I think they're they're pitched towards different audiences, first of all. And you know, the whole thing about uh, uh, you know, and I of, of course, obviously, just you and I. I mean, we're we're kind of middle aged white guys, so mm-hmm. we automatically when when we start to talk about. Uh, our feelings about a film like this there there's that that automatic sort of discomfort about saying oh 
you know, am I really the best place person to comment on this kind of side of things? Mm -hmm. um, because on a certain level, I can't possibly sort of um, put myself in the place of, of a black family who lived in Depression era Louisiana. Uh, but I would say that this film is pitched at a different audience than, say, Shaft would be. Um, I also think there, there's something to be said for, um, because I think one of the things we talked about in the film already is about the, the uh, approaching adversity in a positive way and understanding that sometimes people are in situations where they just don't have any power. And when, when it, all those things are stacked against you, sometimes you do have to find your, your dignity and your um, sort of ability to cope in different ways that sometimes, um, you know, sort of violence and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, raging against things is not always the, the, an option, is mm -hmm. it? Oh, yeah. Uh, if, if he had, if, if Nathan, the father had taken a Black Panther-esque stance, yeah. he would have just been shot right on sight. There would have been no debate or, you know, yeah. public scandal or any of that there, you know, it would have just been over. Right. Yeah. And I think you see that in any, even if we just re remove uh, our, the, the discussion away from sort of uh, interracial uh, sort of um, uh, issues like uh, th those kind of issues, just in life in general, there's always mm -hmm. times when people are faced with situations wh where they they are powerless, right. and 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 it is it is uh, you know it is something that that uh, you have to really consider your how you're going to go about things in those situations, where you know. And I, I think this film handles these these things very well. Like I say, there's no, everything's done quite subtly and with some thoughtfulness. And um, all the characters in this film, uh, and, and when I talk about the characters, I mean the, 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 the family, the main mm -hmm. characters in right. the film, the protagonists, always uh, behave in, with dignity and mm -hmm. self-respect and the, the, the love that they show for each other and the support and uh, and how they uh, find ways to work through these uh, bad uh, situations. And I think certainly, certainly in American films, there's always that it seems sometimes like the answer to everything that the only way people can be empowered is through violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I even yeah. see that nowadays too, when you talk about like, you see some of these superhero films that have oh. female uh, sort of central characters. I mean, I, what was it? Was it Captain Marvel? Mm -hmm. When that one came out, there was all this, all this film is so great because it shown, shows an empowered woman. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a, a film about people, you know, dressing up in costumes and punching each other in the face. Yeah, yeah, I'm, she's I'm just a sure. female ass kicker. That's basically Yeah, exactly, shit, but right, I'm not right. sure that that's really <laughs> a great representation of, of female empowerment, is it? Because that's not violence in and of itself. I mean, it's one way sometimes people are... Um, uh, you know, driven to circumstances where they have to defend themselves or they have mm -hmm. to resort to to violence. And, uh, but I, I could never condone that usually, right. but I understand that sometimes that, that, 
you know, sometimes you're not left with any choice. You have to defend yourself. You have to defend your family. Those are normal sort of reactions and part of the kind of human experience, I guess. But at the same time, you, it's not, violence is very rarely productive, is it? It just, it, it just perpetuates that. Well, it, so, it, it's the selling of a myth that violence does get things done. And that is a very appealing message to, to American audiences and, and not just American audiences, but audiences all over yeah. the world. I mean, so how many movies are really just, you know, the plot is driven by a setup to manufacture the sufficient righteous outrage that now we're just going to go on a frenzy and get yeah. our revenge, <laughs> you know? Well, so, yeah, you talked yeah, about yeah. the film you did a couple of weeks ago, about the last house on the oh, left, right, right. you know, there, there's a perfect example of like a very extreme example of a film that just basically uh, uses violence as as a way of uh, of, of perpetuating a a story uh, and and give, giving the characters a stake in perpetuating more violence. And you know, is that a productive thing? Like you say, if if uh, Paul Winfield's character in this movie had picked up a stick and started beating people over the head, would that have been a would that have done his family any good? Would it have uh, helped anyone, you know? And, and that review that you mentioned uh, from Andrew Saris, I read it and I was quite gobsmacked because <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't I didn't see the characters in this film as being victims. I saw them, be, I mean, yes, in, in a sense, they are in, a, in bad situations where they are, where they lack power, but they, deal with it in in constructive ways and in positive ways and i don't think that's being a victim at all that's uh you know that's just my take on it i'm sure they're you know i'm probably upsetting somebody now well hey let me let me just kind of give you a few choice quotes listeners of this andrew saris review it's up on my screen right now so here he is in the village voice october 12 1972 and uh, the, the column sort of starts with his recollections of a film festival, which is a pretty interesting read in itself. But he says, the enthusiastic response of a supposedly adult critics to a childish charade-like sounder makes me wonder if a new rating might be useful for victims of aesthetic retardation. <laughs> wow. Uh, he is skipping ahead a little bit here. He kind of summarizes uh, the, the plot. Sounder is a hunting dog. See the dog run with a little black boy and his daddy in Louise in 1933 the boy and his daddy are hunting a varmint to put meat on the table they tell us so they need to put meat on the table because they aren't getting enough money for sharecropping and then he goes on and again just this really kind of condescending tone uh, you've never seen such a polite family anywhere not even in the most elevated pages of Emily Post, nor in the most turgid tolerance tracks of moral rearmament. The whole movie stinks of such one-dimensional sanctimoniousness that the least <laughs> inspired black superstud movie becomes a hymn to liberation by comparison. I suppose it must be reassuring to at least some of us to see blacks once more back in their familiar roles as victims of a social substratum from which we otherwise guilt-ridden New Yorkers are morally isolated. How comforting it is to revisit the Old South in which other people's bigotry can be lumped together with another region's provincialism. And anyways, uh, going on a little bit further here, uh, this one got me. Anyway, I have never liked the helpless victim genre, be it done as adroitly as The Bicycle Thief, which is how that film Bicycle Thieves was referred to back then, 
or as sincerely as nothing but a man. But if the bicycle thief begs for our sympathy, Sounder literally slobbers for it. <laughs> I mean, that is that is to say that nothing in this thoroughly inept movie is more inept than the repeatedly detached and hence underlined emotion Martin Ritt and his cast have overplayed in the preceding shot. It's just like, wow, he's... I, I think Andrew was having a really bad day or something <laughs> <laughs> because he's just so, so harsh, so bitter. It's like, um, you know, who hurt you, Andrew? <laughs> you know, um, you want to talk about inept. I mean, that yeah. review, I think is just inept. And I, I was so shocked when I read it. Like, honestly, that like, it's almost like he didn't watch the film. He kind of, that's one of those reviews where you think he kind of, he just made all these assumptions about, uh, what the film was and then just write a review and he never actually watched it or or just went into it with such a big chip on his shoulder and i guess that's maybe my what i was thinking is what was this seen as some kind of do-gooderism is was there kind of a resentment of directors like martin ritt who maybe speak from a position of you know what we would call today white privilege to to you know give a lesson to their uh, less enlightened you know counterparts in the audience and i'm talking specifically about you know the the white people of privilege who maybe unconsciously buy into some of the racist presuppositions or don't adequately challenge or question or push back against the system i don't know i'm just trying to think what what is it that, that accounts for this kind of um I don't know, this this undermining of what I think is a, a movie that, that has its heart in the right place, it has good mm-hmm. intentions, it has uh, an aesthetic um, skill at how the film is presented, how the story's told. Uh, you know, we, yeah. we filled a pretty good part of an hour with a, a lot of positive comments about about this movie. And I don't think we're just a couple of dumbos who were <laughs> swept along by some, you know, uh, tug on our sentimental chain. So I, you know, it, yeah. it was just interesting to me, and especially, you know, in the light of, you know, the, the current discourse in cinema about representation, about minority voices, um, you know, blacks, women, people of color. Uh, nowadays, we'd get into the LGBTQ thing. As, as far as, you know, creative uh, presentations of messages that, that might be not quite in the cultural or critical mainstream, but we want to take them seriously and, and engage and, and, and receive that message. I don't know, I'm just, you know, Maybe it's hard for me to get my head around it, but I, you know, there are other similar reviews. The New York Times kind of has a, you know, damning with with faint praise type of review, and others, you know, maybe put this in the film in the category of of movie pablum um, that I don't think it really de- deserves to be included with. Well, what do you think, David? Well, no, I I agree with you. I mean, I think the 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 key thing that really bothers me about that review is like in a in a way, uh, Mr. Saris was almost saying that this film is, is disingenuous in some way. Like yeah, it's not yeah. like that that it's not because uh, we know that people live like this. We know that some of the issues that are covered in this film are, you know, it's historical fact. So it's not like you can turn around and say that the film is just being completely manipulative and creating these, you know, these poor victims of this horrible thing just for the sake of manipulating the audience. I, I don't think that's a fair assessment of it at all. Right. Um, you know, the key the difference for me is that, that the film represents these things, but it tries to do it in a more 
uh, subtle and positive way. Uh, and it is aimed presumably at more of a family audience with right. the assumption that children are going to be watching this film. So for me, I, I think it, it balances those issues and, and brings in these ideas in a, in a very uh, good way that that makes it uh, accessible and in an and almost in a sense more realistic because mm -hmm. i can't um god i'm probably really going to get myself into trouble here but sometimes when you watch a, a film like um the the not the original obviously but the more recent birth of a nation mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is just a film that uh, it, again and it was based on a true story as well like a, an actual historical incident but that film is a catalog uh, of just really nasty and unpleasant things. Right. And, and, and not to say that none of those things didn't happen, but when you um, sort of uh, concentrate it all in one place and in one thing and sort of make it out, like it was just like all happened all at once and in this big barrage, that has more of a of an accumulative effect of of kind of exhausting you on that emotional level about mm -hmm. dealing with that stuff mm -hmm. because obviously in real life things don't all happen all at once they, those things were you know happened all over the place to many people over many many years and it was all kind of um when you concentrate it all together it has a different kind of effect uh this film just shows the life of a family who are just going through. Yeah. Uh, they live in a community. These are the kind of things that they would have to deal with. And this is how they chose to, to deal with it. Some, they made some good decisions and some bad decisions. And these are the impacts that they had. And I think that that's, that's a really, I mean, I can't fault this film. I really, really think it's a very good film and really worth watching. Yeah. And, and the, the you know the the charge perhaps that it maybe uh, romanticizes or you know puts kind of a gauzy filter you know with all the beautiful nature shots and you know the the the, the kind of lyricism of the kind of the blues guitar soundtrack and you know it, it maybe softens the the real life brutality of of uh you know the sharecropper and Jim Crow era and all of that you might be able to make the the case that this film doesn't portray that quite as realistically nobody ever uses the n-word uh you know there's a lot of boy talk you know addressing both black children and black men as boy and you know there's that kind of thing but it's you know yeah you could say this is not as as kind of um bracing or as as hard charging as it could be if you really wanted to make an accurate portrayal of that era mm -hmm. but again this is a family movie you don't have to you know uh, go full bore, you know, with, with the abuse and the degradation that, you know, many people of color experienced in those times to get the point across, you know, these are, there's signifying going on here that says, yeah, if you really want to know the truth, it's even worse than what you see on screen, but it's a, rep mm -hmm. it's a realistic representation of, of the hardships. Uh, but yeah, to say that this movie was inept or just completely, you know, wrongheaded from the get go, which seems to be under Saris's view, uh, just, yeah, just something really struck me there because I've benefited quite a bit from his, um, 
yeah, his critical work. I mean, he was married to Molly Haskell. He was present at the d- debut of a lot of the great Nouvelle Vague films. Uh, he, 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 his first writing for the Village Voice was a review of Psycho. So you know, he's a he's yeah. among the very you know, elite top tier of, of film critics who've had a lot of influence on me. But when I saw this, it's like wow. And but it, it could just be that you know there was a there was just kind of a a little cul-de-sac that he and other critics had fallen into about these kind of like I said earlier do-gooder type of movies that they just weren't ready to hear it. Well, even if the film had been stronger, like we talked about, if it had went more in that direction of being very realistic and really sort of showing those things, his central argument seemed to be that it would still be illegitimate, yeah. wasn't it? Because he was implying that somehow the film was was um, not being genuine or wasn't presenting a genuine view. Yeah. And I, I don't, I, I, I mean, I, I just can't accept that. I, I was shocked by it, frankly, that interview. Yeah. And I, I love the response, the rebuttal letter. <laughs> yeah, there's a letter that I'll let, I'll let uh, uh, listeners find it for themselves. It's basically a, an angry denunciation from a, a lady who enjoyed the film and uh, yeah. let the village voice hear her own voice. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, anything else you wanted to say about either the film or some of its uh, lingering reputation? Maybe we can start wrapping up our coverage of uh, Sounder at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not um, too sure about the status of this film. It's quite interesting is because when I, um, uh, you know, put myself forward to join the show today and I, I looked oh, yeah. out to see how I could see the film, yeah. I ended up, oddly enough, watching this on the Film Detective on their sort of, you know, their little Apple TV app. Okay. Uh, and, you know, the app, uh, the film detective to me, uh, you know, they tend to deal with sort of public domain stuff and kind of mm. rescuing sort of, uh, you know, more obscure sort of things. Um, and, and it's a good quality copy on there. So I would definitely recommend anyone in the UK that if you wanted to watch Sounder and you should want to watch Sounder, I think you, you should go and check it out on the film detective because it's free. And, uh, and it's a quite good quality uh, uh, presentation of the film. Uh, but I, I did find that because I did notice, like you uh, said, um, David, that it was co-produced by Mattel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it had the 20th Century Fox logo at the beginning. Yet the film seems to be, it's not really uh, distributed by 20th Century Fox anymore, right? which I guess would be Disney now. Uh, and it just seems to be floating around in public domain copies and stuff. So I, I found that a bit interesting because this is quite of a, a famous film of its day. It was like you say, it was nominated for Academy Awards and it's got quite high profile cast. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a bit surprised to find that it's actually not that sort of readily out there and available. You have to do a little bit of digging to get it. Yeah, the I think the, the high quality of... Uh the the print that you saw the you know the version that's available may be due to the fact that this film was selected uh as part of the u.s film registry by the library of congress so mm-hmm. you know and and I, i've got a an acquaintance who's really kind of into curating that list and tracking which films are 
are chosen, but you know the Library of Congress in the United States is kind of a you know a branch of government or not a branch, but it's it's within the the sanctions of the United States official government, and they and they choose releases that have this kind of cultural significance, and they and they make sure that there's like a, a perfectly preserved master copy or at least the best available copy based on the elements. So I would imagine that you know whatever versions are out there have been fully restored and all of that but it does seem like this is a film that would be you know deserving of a of a pretty good authoritative presentation now whether the criterion mm. collection would actually pick it up seems a little bit unlikely but you you're right there should be a, a nice preserved maybe even a 4k version out there at some mm. point because i feel the film does have certainly it has the aesthetic beauty with with the with the nature scenes the soundtrack i think a, a high quality presentation makes a lot of sense and i think you know because it does tell a, a a worthwhile story from an important chapter of american history raises awareness of the past and and i think that's something that will be of value to future generations where it might be harder to recreate a movie like this and some of the, the, the like the shacks and some of the some of the uh the scenery you know even like when they show up to the courthouse and there's just a, a picture of a confederate monument right in front of the 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 courthouse there a lot of those monuments are being taken down now you know i mean i know you can build one for a movie set if you need to but you know mm-hmm. just we've we've moved on and i think there'd be a lot of young people today who would benefit from watching this movie so i, I do hope that uh there will be a good definitive version out there for you know, for the home viewing audience at some point in the future. Yeah, I mean, hopefully. I mean, it's more of a worry now with with I guess with the yeah. physical media as a mass market True. sort of True. thing that I guess it becomes with each passing year it becomes less and less likely that we're going to see many more films get that kind of treatment. Um, but I think this one, uh, you know, hopefully. Um, because like you say we we talked about at the beginning about the fact that it might be associated as just being like a sort of a, a smaltzy children's film that that unfortunately maybe it's a bit more overlooked than it should be uh, and i haven't seen as i said the remake uh, of of sounder that disney did um, uh, well i guess you said nearly 20 years ago now <laughs> right amazingly. right um because it seems like only yesterday well you know this this movie when it was made would be the equivalent of making a movie set in like the early reagan years early 1980s now you know so uh that's that's just another little sort of generational passing of time thing that we all have to reckon with don't we (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean i can't imagine why you would feel compelled to remake this film yeah it's in color it's beautifully made it's got great performances by quite high profile actors yeah and uh, yeah, you're not going to get better casting in a new version I don't yeah think. exactly yeah, right, so right. I'm, I'm not sure what would have possessed him to sit down and say oh we need to make a new version of of this yeah. uh, and again i haven't seen that so it may be really good and and no no disrespect to kevin hooks if uh if he's made a really great film there maybe one day i'll get around to watching that one just to compare hmm. but I, I guess I would say to people out there um, uh, as my closing thoughts that this is um, uh, uh, not a, a sugary, syrupy, sort of smaltzy, sentimental kind of kiddie film at all. This is a really thoughtful, well-made, uh, beautiful, uh, positive film uh, that uh, um, I think is really, really worth watching. And 
I think uh, I, I would highly recommend people uh, search it out. Well, actually, you don't have to search it out. It's uh, available from the Film Detective for yeah. free of charge. It won't won't cost you a penny. So you can go and watch it right now. Yeah, and I'm certainly glad that the Criterion Channel did select it uh, as a little bit of a spotlight themselves. I I, I didn't see it on the Leaving in December uh, list. Uh, of course, we're in early in December now as we record this. So it'll be around for, for sure for the rest of this month and maybe through the end of January. It feels like it's probably going to be a temporary assignment, but maybe it'll go longer than just a few months. So I certainly encourage anybody listening this far into it, if you haven't watched it yet, please do it's it's i think it goes easy down it, it goes down easy it's it's quick uh not a f- short necessarily fast movie but uh it's a very pleasant watch so uh i have no hesitation to say go check it out so while i've still got you uh, on the line here david let's go ahead and transition to a little bit of the uh, more recent uh public sensation we've talked a little bit about critical <laughs> discourse and all of that the uh yes. the new sight and sound uh, 100 greatest films of all time list has been released, actually two lists, one by critics, uh, that's the more well-populated group, around 1,600-plus voters uh, selected their 10 favorites, and then there was a director's poll of around 480 film directors who were invited to participate, or at least who were those who were invited, those are the ones that chose. So we've got two par- somewhat parallel lists, uh, but, you know, and I don't really... I'm not going to get the list out right now and, and go through them line by line. I mean, there there probably will be other podcasts doing that, but just kind of curious, you know, I've been engaged in a fair amount of conversation on uh, both Facebook groups and also did a couple TikTok videos uh, on my own, just kind of sharing some of my thoughts. Uh, and I'll maybe have a few things to say here, but uh, I don't know. Uh, how much were you anticipating this list? And do you have just a kind of a, a quick take reaction to uh uh, what was probably the big, you know, headline was that Jean Dielman, uh I'll kind of keep the, the title brief there, uh, yes, directed yes, by Chantal please. Ackerman, <laughs> <laughs> took a, by a, I think, but pretty universal surprise, took the number one spot. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can react to that or just any other thoughts you have on, on the poll. Well, I, guess, I mean, the sight and sound poll is probably the only one of these types of things that I take seriously at all. I kind of, you know, I do kind of look forward to it. They only do it once every 10 years or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at least there's some sort of methodology to it in terms of how they compile it. Um, I'm a bit skeptical of lists in general. Um, I, I, you know, they, as, soon, as soon as you start saying things like the best and the greatest and the this and the that, and you start ranking things, you know, 199, 98, you know, as soon as you start getting into that, I start sort of rolling my eyes because all that kind of stuff is very much subjective, isn't it? And, um, you know, one, there's always going to be the arguments about, well, this should have been on it and where's this and all that, that film. Yeah. It's not so great. And then nowadays, of course, we have the, you know, uh, the, the other side of it about, you know, people, and, and quite rightly, I agree with this, that we should make sure that we're seeing more uh, representative of, of different cultures and different mm-hmm. types of filmmakers and different types of films. Um, so I, I don't disagree with that argument. But I also, you know, some of the, the, the discourse that I've been seeing around people kind of saying, oh, these are just the same old films. And everyone always says Citizen Kane's the greatest film. But I would argue, <laughs> yeah. you know, things like, 
I mean, it's the same with music and books and everything. I think there is certain sort of seminal uh, works of art in any kind of field of endeavor that you can honestly point to them and say they are great. They mm-hmm. are, you know, I maybe I, I think I would just take the est off the end. The whole thing about when you have a list of great films is that they're great films. Yeah. I would get away from saying great est. Yeah. You know, great is great, and I think you get, no one in their in their right mind could argue that something like Andrei Rublev isn't like a great masterpiece. Of, sure, it's a perfect film that has you, you know that that uh, speaks on many levels about the human experience, and it is perfectly formed and beautifully made, and and it uses all of the tools of filmmaking. In a, in a kind of perfect way and you can't argue with that and it's it's so for people to turn around and say all oh, those same old films let's just throw those away and let's start uh, talking about new films um i i have a little bit of trouble with that argument because i think mm-hmm. like any like you know you, you can't argue that i don't know Beethoven's Ninth Symphony isn't a great masterpiece and a work of art and no nothing's ever going to change that no one ever is going to come along and uh, sort of usurp that and make that and is, is, is going to change that because a great thing is a great thing mm-hmm. and you can't argue with that uh so i guess that's all i would say about it i think that list of films there's a lot of really great films that people should see i think the positive thing about lists of these kind is that it, if it gets even just five people who wouldn't normally watch those kind of films to go out there and try, you know, and maybe it might open the door to a few people discovering some really great films that they might not uh, have otherwise exposed themselves to. Then I think that's where the value of a list like this come from, uh, come, come in, sorry, is that, yeah. that it encourages people to kind of go, Oh, Citizen Kane. Everyone always says that's the greatest film ever made, but I've never seen that. I should go and check that out. Right. Or, you know, um, uh, and whatever is on the top spot, whether it's Vertigo or, sorry, what's the name of that film again? The one with the short title, The Housewife. Jean Dielman. Jean Dielman. Yeah, Jean yeah, Dielman. Right. Yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm just joking around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a really long title. Yeah. Right, uh, right, but, right. But that is a great film. I mean, it's the kind of film that I wouldn't necessarily, someone who's used to, uh, you know, watching Sounder or, or you know, Captain <laughs> yeah. Marvel or, uh, you know, uh, Adam Sandler movies and things like that. I wouldn't necessarily say that you want to just jump in on that because that's the kind of thing you might want to build yourself up with some other things like bicycle thieves yeah. and some other films like that to sort of acclimatize yourself to films that aren't necessarily just as commercial, uh, you know, American commercial films that people might be used to. So it might be worth sort of, uh, you know, taking baby steps and working your way up to that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, th- I think there yeah. there is so much. Uh, in fact, I made a Facebook comment right before we started um, talking this morning about 
this winner take all mentality. Like since yeah. Jean Dillman got the number one spot and bumped Vertigo down to two, and Kane continues its descent, its its catastrophic <laughs> fall down to number three on oh, the list. You know, yeah. after dominating for for you know several decades, uh, yeah. you know how much emphasis is placed on the fact that this very long, uh, you know, three plus hour, you know story where there's not a whole lot of dramatic narrative action i mean it's a slow burn you know uh, probably the, the one of the greatest slow burns of all slow cinema but the fact that it, it just it leapt over that uh has just stirred up such a such a storm of resentment in some circles uh and, and but also within other circles of uh, feelings of validation and recognition i i, yeah. I mean i feel like it was you know uh pretty fantastic result because if it had been vertigo for a, another 10 years or citizen kane retaking the throne or even you know my personal favorite like 2001 a space odyssey that's a film i've had a very intense relationship with since i was a child mm. when i first saw it so that movie's like been my life's companion i've seen it numerous times showed it to friends and family and watched it in different settings so there will never be another movie that means as much to me as 2001 did but if, mm. if any of those kind of more conventional predictable titles had won the, the, this year's poll well that's cool interesting list oh here's some things that have shifted around but I, the fact that uh, a female-directed film that is not uh, really, you know, as as audience-friendly or as conventional of a film as even the, you know, the masterpieces that I've just named there wins it, that just stirs up all this commotion. It really is so fascinating. And, of course, further down the list, there's a lot of other, you know, voices from, from women, LGBTQ, uh, black directors a little bit, you know, Spike Lee's, I think, do the right thing is the highest ranked on that list. So there's a lot of interesting conversation that's come out of those results. And I think as we start to see a more extensive reporting of, you know, the top 250, the top 500, we get full productions of all the lists that were submitted and the total number of votes that were given. I think Sight and Sound is going to be rolling that out over the next several months. Uh, before we get all the data. And then there's the director's poll, which to me feels like a much more conventional film canon. You know, 2001 mm. actually did win that poll. And if you go down the list, you sort of see more of a cinematic hall of fame of the mm. all-time greats, uh, whereas the, the critics' poll feels much more subjective, much more personal, younger, more diverse. And there's been a publication of a lot of individual lists as, as different voters have shared their top 10. You start to see an enormous variety of, of sometimes very small or obscure films that mean a lot to that particular voter. And so there's really a lot of dissipation of votes. This isn't like everybody's voting on the film canon as such, whatever you might want to say, are the top two or 300, and we're going to pick our top 10 out of that select group. They go all over the place. So to me, it's a really, it's been a very interesting and much more stimulating and engrossing um, development than I was expecting. I, I've not been on pins and needles waiting for the sight and sound pole to drop. I thought it would probably be just another iteration of Vertigo or Kane and, and maybe a moment's notice. But this is really, I don't, I've been really fascinated by uh, some of the intensity of emotions and, and uh, you know, even though I'm not really impressed by some of the vitriol and kind of disappointed, honestly, at some of the, uh, the opinions expressed, 
uh, it's still very interesting as we sort of see a, a passing of the generations. I think the the old school critics who were kind of used to setting the tones and saying, here are the classics, that authority's been challenged now. And I think some of those folks, uh, people like even my age or a little bit older, are not dealing with it quite as well as I think they ought. Uh, we got to let the new generation step up and let their voices yeah. be heard. Well, yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, there, it, I really don't think you need to take this that seriously and get right. that upset about it. And I think that is a great film and it deserves to have some attention and yep. to encourage more people to watch it. Like I said, uh, when we first started talking about this, I think the best thing they could do with these kind of lists is to take the rankings away yeah. and, and also to... Um, you know, take the EST off the ends of them and True. just, yeah. you the know, the greatest films of all time really does. It does seem to be, yeah. I mean, even though sight and sound says, you know, greatness is defined subjectively. Well, you know, that's kind of having it both ways. If you say the greatest, you really are making a statement about the most important, the most worthwhile, you know, the most yeah. esteemed right. movies of all time. And it's like, how about the most critically popular films of the moment? <laughs> Something like yes. that. Or, you know, yeah. um, you know, being maybe a little bit less hyperbolic in, in how you bill it. I think because of the rarity of the poll, the fact that it is a once a decade thing, and it's really the granddaddy of all the lists. I mean, it started in 1952. Uh, yeah. among this critical establishment that has gone on to become this massively influential sort of uh, set of tastemakers, you know, I mean, the the whole French New Wave and, and all of this, uh, you know, Janus films, the Criterion Collection and all the other art house labels that sort of spun around that all kind of come out of this same little group of, of, of film devotees. Uh, which has kind of resisted the allure of, you know, comic books, superhero movies, escapist <laughs> fantasy. You know, there's no, there's no Lord of the Rings. There's no Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> uh, there's yeah. no Batman or any of that kind of stuff on this list. Not even close. Um, it's a different, it's a different subset within the cinephile community. But it's one that obviously, for somebody like myself, and I think for you too, David, and for many regular listeners to this show. It holds a lot of clout, and I, I do appreciate the conversation that this generated. And it is going to change. It should be fluid and, oh, yeah. and yeah. change over time because uh, that's natural. Because even just uh, films, like if you look at something like um, uh, who we sadly, we sadly lost Godard a little while mm -hmm. ago, yep. but is Breathless. At the time when it came out, it was like a bomb going off, wasn't oh, it? it? Total was game changer, influential, right? right. Mm -hmm. Completely innovative. No one had ever seen something like that, and it just blew people away. But I think because some of this stylistically, that's kind of entered into the vocabulary of film and sort of branched out and sort of gone into the DNA of filmmaking. Yeah. Now, a 20 year old who sits down to watch Breathless is just not going to have the same cultural sort of uh, position uh, or understanding or, or uh, perspective that someone in 1960 would have had watching right. that film. So they're not going to respond to it in the same way. Yeah, you, you like is, Belmondo's style or, or yeah, Gene exactly. Seberg's, you know, character, their exactly. presentation. Oh, there's a jump cut, though. That's where those came from, sure. You know, but you're right. The, 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 the thrill of the new isn't there. But, you know, I just had a chance to see Memoria, the traveling Pichapong Wurastakul roadshow movie, you know, long, slow, static shots. Uh, 
I totally get to see why it's got to be seen in theater because of the sound mix is is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that film is almost like a direct descendant of Jean Dielman, in my opinion. I'm sure that's not a totally original thought or anything, but you know mm-hmm. that that kind of fixed camera just let reality unfold and and it's it is directed it is staged it is you know, a crafted thing but it's done with a, such a deliberation and with such a patience that uh you know it is a new style of filmmaking a new vocabulary certainly when when Chantal Ackerman made that film back in the 70s i don't think she or even maybe many of its contemporary viewers understood the long uh, footprint that it would have, the impact that it would have over future generations of, of, of movie makers. And yet here it is, yeah, uh, the most popularly selected out of uh, a group of 1600 critics. Uh, and so yeah. I think it's a, it's a pretty fantastic moment to, to just sort of take stock and say, well, where is cinema been? Where is it going now? And, and uh, what do we have to look forward to? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, to put it in perspective for you, I I have sometimes I have conversations with my kids because I sometimes sit them down and I'll show them like old sort of uh, Ray Harryhausen movies and things like that, uh, you know, just to try to show them a little bit of sort of the past, the history. And they have the, that response. They kind of look at their because they're young kids and they, they don't have the context in that. Right. And, and the, the sort of uh, the, the um, you know, having seen uh, a huge, yeah, huge CG variety and, and of different that, yeah. things. Yeah, so Which for them, they, they do. They always comment yeah. on, oh, the special effects aren't, aren't very good. And they'll yeah. make little comments like that. Uh, and I guess that's the thing with, with a film like, like that, too. Like um, you, someone now sitting down and watching a film made in 1970 about a housewife you know going through her daily sort of monotonous routine and everything it it's a big it 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 would be difficult for a young person to to have the the necessarily the right perspective to be able to sit down and enjoy Mm -hmm. it on a certain level as a piece of entertainment so I think whenever anyone sort of goes and watches any of these things they need to have a little bit of the, the the grounding in the context of when it was made, oh, sure. why it was made, and the, and the circumstances in which it was made, and able to be able to really appreciate it. Oh yeah, and well, and, for hmm. any of those things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Citizen Kane. You've got to put it in the context of its times, and what were the innovations that it made, and what was the history that it was drawing from, and and even the the personality of Orson Welles and others involved. Vertigo. It's it's an impressive film if you watch it, but really until you really get to know Hitchcock and the whole. Hitchcock thing, that film's not going to resonate in the same way until you you really familiarized yourself with, you know, why it where when it came out in his career, what was he, what had he done before, what was he going to do afterwards, you know, Kubrick in two thousand and one, and then all the way down the list, all of these films benefit from understanding and context. And when they get to a prominent place on the list, Tokyo Story, another one, you know, I've mm-hmm. often said that I'm not sure that that's the best introduction to Ozu. It's mm-hmm. a culmination of a certain, you know, sort in his whole career, but uh, there yeah. are other Ozu films I like more, but that's kind of the one that everybody's yeah. sort of settled on as the preeminent Ozu film. I understand yeah, why. Yeah, I would say uh, Good Morning is probably the best one for the, sure. for the uninitiated to yeah, say yeah. this is uh-huh. because that's such an entertaining and kind of universally themed film that I think anyone would enjoy that if they sat down to watch it. 
um, yeah. even if they'd never seen a Japanese film before, they would sure. love it. Yeah, and they, um, would, they would get where they're coming from, exactly. Yeah, definitely. But I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's good, these conversations, I think it's good to that, that these lists change and grow and expand and uh, different perspectives get brought into it. Yeah. And, you know, I can't wait till for 10 years from now to see what we get um, in the, in the list next time about what will be number one. And, um, and like I say, I think the, the main value of these things for me, I don't take them particularly that seriously, right. except to say, I know, because I, I already know a lot of the films on those lists and I've, I've experienced them and I, I even have copies of them sitting on my shelf. <laughs> but the yeah. real value is for that, that younger person or just somebody who isn't used to watching those kind of things to, to look at something and pick it off the list and kind of go, hey, that, that looks interesting. Maybe I'll go and check that out because it's one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. So maybe I, I should go and see this. And if we, we just get a few more people who, uh, who uh, kind of jump on the, the film lover's bandwagon and experience, have, a, have a, a great experience watching one of these films and then start to branch out and check out some more things and that, then I think that's where the value of a list like this is. It's like getting pe people to watch cool films. Excellent. All right. Well, I think our time has kind of run its course, but I, I hope listeners you've enjoyed our, our little diversion. We don't always cover the news on this podcast, <laughs> but I thought it was very worth spending some time. I definitely appreciate your, your hearing your thoughts on that, David. Very much concur with the value of these lists as a kind of curiosity prompters for uh, the uninitiated, as well as, you know, banter for us who want to sort of sort of see where trends are going and, and uh, taste how they're changing. So mm. excellent. All right. Well, listeners, my next episode is going to be on the discrete charm of the bourgeoisie. Uh, this is a oh, film great. that I talked about not that long ago with Trevor Barrett. We covered it on our inside the box podcast as part of the, uh, the, the Bunuel trilogy that was released, I think, back at the beginning of 2021. So even though I've talked about this film not that long ago, and I've also wrote about it in my uh, blog years ago, uh, I'm always up for another go-around of Bunuel. <laughs> so uh, looking forward to that. I don't know if that's going to be until after the new year, because we are in early December now. I've got our year-end episode for Criterion Cast coming up and some other things going on in just a busy time of year. So I might try to squeeze it in. And I've also got a number of guests who have expressed interest in joining me for that episode. So we'll have to sort of see what everybody's availability is like. So, uh, you know, don't hold your breath waiting for the next episode. But I definitely will look forward to getting that conversation lined up and presented to you all here on Criterion Reflection. So until then, thanks for listening in. Give me some feedback if you'd like to listen in and let me know what you think about our conversation today and uh, and just thoughts in general. So you can find me on TikTok, Facebook, um, and maybe on Twitter. I'm not really there as much these days. <laughs> I've kind of a, sort of taken a side eye view of that whole app. But anyways, uh, it's good talking to you and uh, you'll have a great holiday season as we get into that time of the year. We'll be all at you soon. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye, everyone.